Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. We're continuing this morning talking about seeking, seeking things, seeking, uh, we've talked about seeking God and seeking home. We're going to speak this morning about community, appropriately as it is our community Sunday. And I'm going to use a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Last week we were in Jeremiah, this week in Isaiah. If you have your Bibles with you, electronic or otherwise, or if you use the U version on your phone or your device, get it set to Isaiah chapter 45. Put your uh, bookmark in there or your finger on the page. When I get to it, we'll be about uh, three-quarters of the way through that chapter, beginning at verse 18. But I want to give you a little bit of a background about this passage of Scripture. Isaiah, in this chapter of his book, he's talking about the all-powerful, almighty God. God is omnipotent. He is sovereign. There is none like God. This is his theme, and he says God is so sovereign, he can use a pagan king if that were his choosing. And as he's leading up to the passage we'll read today, he mentions a king named Cyrus a couple of times, and he says he's going to use this king for his own purpose, even though this king will not acknowledge God. God is the one who is going to strengthen him. And this king is going to be instrumental in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and he's going to do it for no price and no reward. And that's an amazing thing, because I know, if you know any politician who's doing something without, you know, some kind of uh, tax or payment, well, I don't know, introduce them to me. Uh, So this is what the Lord says, this king is going to be used, no price, no reward. And you know what? We know it's true because it came to pass. We know that God's word is true. King Cyrus, many years later, was the king who wrote the decree that said, all right, you people who've been exiled, you can go back and you can rebuild your city and you can rebuild your temple. And Isaiah continues this theme about how powerful God is. And he declares that God is God alone. And every other God, no matter what, that is a man-made, imaginative God, and it's an idol, and it's powerless. So God, as we get to the passage I'm going to read, he's not only talking to his people that are there in Israel, but he actually starts now to make a declaration to all the nations around. As he's mentioned this king from another nation, he's now going to mention the people. So I want to read Isaiah 45, this is verses 18 to 21. And it begins this way, for this is what the Lord says. So let's pay attention. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. 
He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Isaiah, in this brief passage, in this word from the Lord, he presents a challenge. He presents a challenge to this group of people who he's saying, come out of the nations. And he says, they could be like Jacob's descendants. They could be a people who are not seeking God in vain. And this group that Isaiah is calling with the word of God, they're described as fugitives of the nations. These are outcasts. These are the refugees. And he says to them, there is no other God but the God of creation. And what are you carrying around? You're carrying around man-made idols of wood. And now God, uh, in this word, is somewhat mocking. Can your gods declare what is to come? How about you get your little wooden idols together? Bring them together and get their counsel. Can they tell what is to come? Are they going to be able to tell what's happening in the future? Come on, predict it, tell it, declare it. Can they do it? Hardly. The God of Jacob is the God and the only God. He inhabited or he, he created the earth to be inhabited. And God now is calling not just his people, but he's saying to all the nations, you can come. And this is somewhat of a forward-looking prophecy to those who are going to be in what, what came to be the New Testament church. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. And although God was, in a sense, mocking these people because they had these idols of wood and they were powerless, he presents a picture of what the church is going to be. It's going to be fugitives from the nations. That's a picture of the Christian community. Fugitives, strangers, foreigners, exiles. That's us. That's a picture of the church. That was a, a prophecy of what the church was going to look like. What would be this thing that we call the Christian community? And it's going to be comprised of fugitives from the nations. Now this word, a fugitive from the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word. It's the word polite, and it means an exile. It means an escapee. Someone who has come out of some place. They are 
in essence, a refugee. They've been displaced. There is, uh, they, they are no longer in a place that they are accustomed to. They're not in their they're not in their land or their place that they would call normal. We had uh, last month, on a Wednesday night, we had a, a pastor of a church here, and he pastors an Arabic-speaking church, a church of Mideastern people. And he described the challenges that these people have in the United States. Why? Because they're refugees. They don't know the language. They have no transportation. They have a difficult time getting a job. And this is why when they are looking for a community, when they're seeking a community outside of their native land, they are seeking a place where they can find some kind of common bond. They are looking for a community that has some semblance of similarity, that'll have some things that they still share in common. Most refugees would not choose to isolate themselves from a, a group of others because then they would be totally lost. They're totally alone. And that's the idea that Isaiah's trying to get across. You're going to be like refugees. So gather together. Seek a community of like-minded. Don't be an island. No man is an island. None of us can be an island. Those of you who are seeking God, Isaiah is saying, those of you who are uh, as a lost foreigner, come together. We're not made to stand alone. We're not made to be totally and completely independent. God made us as relational beings. We've been formed in the image and the likeness of God. Humankind has received this glorious image of God. God is a relational being. When we say that God is triune, that God is a three-part being, it means that God exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. These three are uniquely distinct and yet they are one God in divine nature. It's difficult for us to comprehend. But the Father is distinct from the Son. And the Father and the Son are distinct from the Holy Spirit. But the Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. They are relational. They fellowship. They exist eternally in this fellowship together. And they have formed from eternity this everlasting community of fellowship. They counseled together when they created the earth. And that's why Isaiah is asking, can your gods counsel together? Can your little wooden idols come together and counsel? No, they can't. Why? Because they're dead wood. But the triune God, the triune God is alive. The triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are in relationship and they can counsel together, and they are the all-powerful one and only God. And we humans, we have been formed in God's image, and we have this innate desire for a relationship and to seek community. And unfortunately, when sin entered into the world, it polluted the world, and evil communities have formed, and people have come together 
with the goal of conquering or enslaving or they have other evil motivations. And Isaiah says in this forward-looking passage, he said, you who seek God, come on, come together, assemble. And that's what we do this morning. As a Christian community, we come together, we assemble as a people who have not sought God in vain. No, not in vain. We've discovered something in our Lord, and we've discovered our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are people that were once, like Isaiah describes, ignorant, trusting in our own ways, trusting in our own gods, our gods of self or our gods of wisdom or our gods of reason. We may not carry around a wooden idol, but you know, we have idols nonetheless. We have our own rationale that we would hold up above God and say, oh, we're smarter or we're better. But what did Isaiah say? He said, your gods cannot save. And no matter what God we have, no matter what we hold up in front of us, it cannot save unless it's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we have come to Christ, we abandon those gods. We put aside those things that we have made idle because we've discovered that there is this one and only God who can save. And that's why we're drawn together. We're drawn together with this common bond of Jesus Christ in our community. And we become like that group that Isaiah describes, fugitives from the nations, refugees. And we form this, this community in the world, and we're different, but we have to remain we have to remain as people in the world, and now we've become strangers. We're, we're refugees. And this is the language not only of the Old Testament, but it's also the language of the New Testament. Us as Christians, we're set apart, we're different from the world around us. In Peter's first letter, the opening salutation, he uses this language in 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to read to you the first two verses. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter wants the grace and the peace to be those that he addressed, those who were receiving his letter, and he says, you're exiles, you're strangers. That's the way the King James uh, Bible translates it. It says strangers. Other versions of our English Bibles, they use these terms. They say sojourners, aliens, foreigners, pilgrims and refugees. And they all mean the same thing in essence. These are people who have come out of some place, a place where they had comfort and they had normality. It was their former community. And now they've come, they've come out, but they didn't stand around as individual islands. No, they came together and they formed communities. And in Peter's time, these groups were little churches that had come out of the nations and now they were foreigners and strangers to the residents of the world around them. And so it is with us who call ourselves Christians today. We've come out of the world. 
And we need to remain out of the world. We're strangers and foreigners to the ways of the world. And we often hear that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. So as a Christian community, yes, we're fugitives and strangers. We're also not of the world. And that's a paraphrase. There's not a specific scripture that says, you are in the world, but not of the world. It's a paraphrase of uh, John 17, and it carries with it this connotation of being a community that is separate, that is different. But I want to ask, does it mean that we should be isolated? As a Christian community, people who have come out of, of sin and we've, we've found a different way of life, and now we've bonded with like-minded others, are we to cloister ourselves and be isolated from the world, a community apart from the world? And I want to read to you some of that from John chapter 17 so that we get a sense of what Jesus was saying when he, when he uses these terms of of the world or in the world. So this is John 17. It's a prayer of Jesus, and he's praying on the night that he is going to be betrayed. It's his last night before he's arrested. And this is verses 15 through 18. And he's praying to God the Father. And he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. And by them, he's praying for his disciples. So my prayer is not that you take my disciples out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So, yes, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are not of the world in the sense that as Christians, who have been saved, who have been brought under the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we no longer seek after the lust of the flesh or the pride of life, or we carry around the idols that were our baggage. We have given them up, and uh, we are, we, we've put them aside, and we know that they cannot save. And so we've come out of that, but we're in this world. And Jesus, in his prayer, he expressly prays that his disciples are not taken out of the world, but instead he says, please, God, protect them from the evil one because they're still in the world. And Jesus has a mission. And he says plainly, Father, I have sent them into the world. So we're not As Christians, we're not of the world, but we have been sent into the world by Jesus Christ. So how do we then reconcile this of being strangers and foreigners and exiles, but also being sent into it? The church is is this idea of fugitives and we're not of the world, but we have been sent into the world by Jesus Christ. And why? What is the mission? We have the mission, and it is to seek and to save those who are lost. 
It is to get others who can come to the knowledge that we have and the grace that we've received and the salvation that has been bestowed upon us. Isn't that it? To seek others to add to this community that we call the Christian community to show them a better way? It is. And Peter, he confirms this. He opened his first letter with this idea of saying, listen, you're strangers. You are exiles. You're foreigners, aliens, sojourners in this land. You're different. But later on, in the second chapter of 1 Peter, of verses 11 and 12 of that second chapter, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here again, Peter, in the second chapter of his letter, he employs the same language. He depicts the Christians as foreigners, as strangers, exiles in the world. He says, you're people, though, that have put aside this junk. You put aside the sinful desires and the things that bring destruction to the soul. And now Peter, like Christ, he points to a mission. And he says that mission isn't isolated from the world. It's not cloistered from the world. It's in the world. As Christians, we're, we're in it. And he says, live such good lives in a world that even though you might be persecuted, even though you might be wrongly accused, let the world see. Let them see your example. Why? So that they too might come to glorify God. That's the mission. That's the mission, to gain others. I was reading uh, the news the other day, and I saw this story about a movie. It's a movie, um, it's called I'm Not Ashamed. I'd never heard of it, uh, but it was just coming out evidently this weekend. And the headline, though, caught my eye because the headline said, it said that um, the atheists are slamming this movie. It says that the movie I'm Not Ashamed has been slammed by the atheists. And I thought, what? Well, why? So I got interested in it. And it's this story of a girl named uh, Rachel Joy Scott. And her story is that she was the first person who was killed at Columbine High School when these two young men came in with guns in uh, 1999 and, and they massacred a, a, a dozen or 13 people and injured so many. She was the first one killed. So this movie presents her story. It's uh, not really a movie about the whole Columbine thing. That's sort of a, a side note until, until the end, but it's her life, and it's based on journals that she wrote. And she was a, just a seemingly a somewhat normal teenage child who had come from a broken home, uh, going to high school and having the normal teenage sort of exaggerated feelings about life. And she journaled these things, and she struggled with uh, her faith. And she was really testing the waters in various areas. But in her senior year of high school, she really made her commitment to Jesus. And she started writing in her journal about it. 
And she wrote things like, I'm not going to be fake anymore. And I want to be a light. And she lost all her friends. She wrote about how losing her friends really was, it just was hard on her because all her friends abandoned her. They called her Jesus freak and that kind of thing. And she became a stranger and an exile in what was her normal place. And then on that day in 1999, her young life is taken. And the reason that the atheists were so angry about this was this, there's one scene that they say is false, that there's no evidence of it. And that is that before she was killed, she was asked, do you believe in God? And her response was affirmative. So because that wasn't in some police report or some official uh, doc, uh, document, it was from some other witnesses, they claim, ah, oh, that could never happen. That would, you know, this story's bunk. It's, it's totally false. Not like any other Hollywood movie's ever been dramatized, right? Let's just pick on this one and rip it apart for one scene. But it's a story of her life, and it's a story of how she became this stranger in exile in her own place because of Jesus Christ. And she started to reach out to others. And she started to help others. And now it's said that her life has touched more than 22 million people, even before this movie, even before the movie was ever released. Her story has reached out to touch 22 million people. And she talked in her journal about a hand. She said she, she was always attracted to hands. And she wanted her hand to be able to touch many lives. And now even in a really hard, difficult situation, it has. And in that example, as I was reading it, I looked at several, too. This was on many websites. I look at the comments afterwards. And that's where it was a little disturbing because you know, Peter says, go live lives that can show the world you're different. And it was the comments from some of the Christians that were disturbing. And they weren't being lights. And let's go out and be lights. If someone picks on us or someone disparages us, let's not respond the way that they would want us to. Jesus sent us into the world. And let's let the world see a Christian community that shares this common bond of Christ, a bond that has forged us closer and stronger by common interests that are motivated not by our self-interest, but by the love of our Savior that he's shown to us. Let's desire to add to this community. Invite someone. Invite someone to be a part of it. I mean, you know about the grace and the, the, the great salvation that you've received. Have you invited someone to be a part of it? Look around you. We've got a lot of room here. You could invite somebody to take a part of it and be a part of this great community that is made up by the common bond of Jesus Christ. Get, get motivated by that to add to this Christian community. Next week, we're having a great opportunity, and it's called Trunk and Treat. Talk about it. Invite some people to come. It's a great opportunity that you can show 
others, the Christian community. And they can come to the church, but they don't have to come to a service. They can bring their children, and they can come out on our, our parking lot, and they can receive some candy, but they can also receive the love of Jesus Christ and then maybe take the opportunity to invite them back, see what more, what, what else is this group all about? You know, we might be a little strange and a little weird and a little odd at times, but we love each other. And that's because Jesus Christ loved us and we can show that to them. Let's be the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. Let's be the answer by going out into the world. Let's be sent into the world to bring people in to the Christian community. And we can exemplify it. And we can exemplify it in the fact that when one of us hurts, we all hurt. You know, we heard this morning about some tough prayer needs and some people that have lost loved ones. And there is no doubt I know for sure many of you are going to reach out to those families. You're going to send them cards. You're going to offer meals. Because when one of us hurts in the community, there's a response because we all feel it. And when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We rejoice with all those who dedicated children this morning because they're going to be part of a community. And we're looking forward to those children to to follow hard after Jesus Christ as they grow and as they advance. And as some move on, we're going to bless them. And as some come in to the congregation, we're going to bless them.